Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going through a series uh, in the book of Exodus, and we're slowing down in Exodus chapter 20 uh, to take 10 weeks to go through the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're on the Second Commandment today. I am going to preach on verses 4 to 6, because we preached on verses 1 to 3 last week, but I'm going to read from verses 1 to 6 so you get the context of the verses. Let me pray for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, your word is precious to us. It is more precious to us than refined gold. Because in your word, you have revealed yourself to us. Because in your word, we encounter Jesus, our Savior, who makes us wise for salvation. Because in your word, we have life. We find your truth. So we ask again that you would speak to us this morning. We humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Please be seated. The the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, uh, is said to have emerged in the U.S. sometime in the 20th century in the advertising industry, pointing out the fact that a single image can convey multiple ideas at once. We gravitate toward images, uh, and images tend to leave indelible marks on our minds. If you read a novel, for example, and then you watch a movie version of it, When you go back to read the novel, you can't help but conjure up those images that you've seen uh, in the movies. No matter how inaccurate they may be, and no matter how unfaithful they may be to the actual text. I'm sure many of you can relate to the experience of seeing images that you wish you could unsee. You know, whether it's a graphic image that inflames your lust, or a dark, frightening image that gives you nightmares when sleeping. And because these images are powerful, they can also be very dangerous. They can hijack our imaginations and control our thinking about people and things. Images can be very misleading. Many pictures taken at unfortunate moments out of context have cost people their jobs and reputations. 
Conversely, many airbrushed and carefully crafted images have shaped perceptions of people that are far from the reality. The second word of the Ten Commandments addresses these concerns about images. It teaches us that rather than making and worshiping images of creatures, we are to worship the Word of God, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. So first we're going to look at the command, the images of creatures, and the motivation for to obey this command, the jealousy of God. And third, we're going to see the fulfillment of this command in the image of God, Jesus Christ. It says in verses 45, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So this is referring to kind of the three divisions of the visible created world uh, in Genesis 1. The heavens where the birds rule, the, the ground where the livestock and the animals rule and the humans ultimately rule and the waters below where the fish uh, rule and and that's the and so he's in this command including all of God's creation, all created beings. You are not to make images of them. However, that doesn't mean that you need to go and burn your painting of the dog, of your dog, or or the Michelangelo or that Michelangelo was an idolater for making his famous sculpture of David. The second commandment does not bar all paintings, sculptures, and stained glass windows depicting animals and humans. The Bible is not anti-art. In fact, later in Exodus 31, the Lord commissions, he gifts and commissions Bezalel and Oholiab to create art inside the tabernacle, including weaving uh, drawings of the cherubim, the angels, into the curtains and making sculptures of cherubim to, to, with their wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, not only that, in Numbers 21, 6-9, when fiery serpents were killing the Israelites due to their rebellion against the Lord, God himself commanded Moses to create a bronze serpent, make it, and to set it on a pole so that people might look upon it and be healed. So it was a memorial, for, and it was kept as a memorial for God's people. So it's not that all images are forbidden. What the connection is in verse 5 because verse 4 is joined to verse 5. It says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The point is that we must not make any image of anything or anyone for the purpose of worshiping them. That is why later in 2 Kings 18 verse 4, when the Israelites start making offerings to the very bronze serpent that God had commanded Moses to make, King Hezekiah rightly smashes it into pieces to stop the idolatry. Unfortunately, this has been uh, an all-too-common practice in human history. The the heavens of the earth earth, and the earth and the waters each have great creatures that have amazed human beings throughout history, and they have been tempted to worship them. For example, if we were to behold the Andean condor, the largest bird of prey on earth, spreading out its majestic wings up to 10 feet 9 inches long and defying gravity and soaring as high as 100 or 18,000 feet in the heavens with the, with the Andean mountains on the backdrop. Imagine that awe-inspiring sight. It was so, so awe-inspiring that the ancient Andean civilizations in South America associated the Andean condor with their sun god and believed that it ruled the upper world. If we were to behold the African savanna elephant weighing a whopping 24,000 pounds, 
and standing over 13 feet tall. And every time it, it walks, it's shaking the ground and that, and that rumble spreads to four miles away. We would marvel at it. So maybe it's not surprising that many cultures worshipped gods and represented gods as elephants. Hindu cosmology says that the earth is propped up by mythical world elephants. And Ganesha, the elephant god, is one of the most popular gods in the Hindu pantheon. If you were to behold a southern humpback whale, which can weigh nearly 200,000 pounds and stretch nearly 60 feet high, or 60 feet in length, and then it could still haul its great body above the water and breach the surface of the Pacific Ocean, you would stand amazed. Perhaps that's why it's used as a representation of Tangaroa, the sea god that controls the tides in the mythology of the Maori people in New Zealand. Similarly, the foreign gods we encounter in the Old Testament in Egypt and Canaan are often associated with some aspect of creation and worshipped as some creature, including Anubis, a jackal, Horus, a falcon, Pharaoh, a serpent, Baal, a bull or ram, Dagon, a fish, Asherah, a woman. That reminds us that human beings are also merely creatures whose images we must not create for worship. We might think that we're no longer susceptible to the worship of creatures, but in truth, we are. There are people whose rooms are filled with posters, cards, and other images of sports stars, athletes. And they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to collect memorabilia connected to them. And they pay thousands of dollars to go to all their games. And after they're inducted to the Hall of Fame, they go to Springfield or Cooperstown or, or Canton, and they literally go pay homage. That's what they call it before the bust or the statue of the athlete. Sometimes star athletes are treated like demigods of Greek mythology, like Hercules or Achilles. I recently saw the trailer of the movie Elvis. Have you guys seen that? I don't know if it's good because I haven't seen it. Uh, and and he's, he's singing and you know prancing around the stage and, and he is playing guitar and he's singing and the crowds are screaming at the top of their lungs and stretching their arms to try to, try to reach him and, and women are literally swooning in front of him and falling. And, and it's, there, there have been, it's been over 45 years since Elvis' death. But still to this day, thousands of Elvis fans make what they call the pilgrimage to Graceland every year to pay tribute to him. They hold a candlelight vigil service at his gravesite, which looks a lot like the worship service. And uh, there's, a, there's an American music journalist named Robert Christgau who says this about Elvis. He says, I know he invented rock and roll in a manner of speaking, but that's not why he is worshipped as a god today. He is worshipped as a god today because in addition to inventing rock and roll, he was the greatest ballad singer this side of Frank Sinatra. Because the spiritual translucence and reigned in gut sexuality of his slow weeper and torchy pop blues still activate the hormones and slavish devotion of millions of female human beings worldwide. Justin Bieber. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> has 114.1 million Twitter followers. That's more number of followers than adherents of Judaism worldwide. And they call themselves believers. 
And some of the more extreme believers send death threats to anyone who dares to harm Justin Bieber or criticize him or refuse to give him a Grammy. Korean pop boy bands and girl bands are literally known as idols. And if you consider BTS's fanatic fan base, I think that's an apt description. So this kind of extreme celebrity devotion is so widespread today that psychiatrists now actually have an official term for it. Celebrity Worship Syndrome, CWS, which is an obsessive addictive disorder where people are overly invested in the details of celebrities' personal and professional life. But no matter how impressive or powerful an animal might be, no matter how accomplished and authoritative and successful or even holy a man or woman might be, the inescapable reality is that they are all mere creatures. And therefore, it is tragic to worship them. We ought to stand in wonder of and worship the Creator who made them because the marvelous works in creation point to God's eternal power and divine nature. The God who created nature transcends nature and therefore cannot be reduced to things that are in nature. Romans 1, 21-25 hits the nail right on the head in its description of sinful humanity. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Recall how God created man and woman in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you examine Egyptian and Assyrian texts written around the same time as the book of Genesis, they speak of idols and images of gods being placed inside the temples of those gods. And they believe that that these images were actually inhabited by the deity, indwelled by the deity. But in Genesis... The Lord, the Eden, is is styled as a temple, described as a temple, but he does not create an idol. Instead, he creates image, his image bearers, man and woman, because they are the ones that are to represent God to the rest of creation, because they are the ones that are to lead the worship of God. And so for God's image bearers who are to lead all creation in worship to instead worship the things that are in creation, to bow before the creatures themselves is far below our station. We were created to worship the Creator, not creatures. But this commandment doesn't merely forbid the worship of false gods. It also warns us against worshiping the true God falsely. Later in Exodus 32, during the prolonged absence of Moses, the Israelites hit the panic button because they don't think Moses is coming back and they think that they've lost the mediator between God and them. And so they make a golden calf and worship that idol. And it's easy for us to think that they were forsaking Yahweh and turning to a false, different God. But if you read the narrative carefully, you can see that they're actually setting up the golden calf as an image or representation of Yahweh. Here in Exodus 20, verse 2, Yahweh says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
But there in Exodus 34, 32 verse 4, the Israelites say of the golden calf, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're not saying this is a new God that you should worship. They're saying this is the old God, Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt. And then Aaron builds an altar right before the golden calf. And then he proclaims a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. So, so the Israelites are not rewriting history by saying that golden calf and not Yahweh brought them out of Egypt. They're saying that the golden calf represents the Lord. It is the image of Yahweh. So that's a violation of the second commandment. They created the image because they thought that it would keep them connected to the Lord. When, and when they fear the absence of God due to the absence of Moses, they reduce God into something that they can control, something tangible, something that they can see. But ironically, the creation of the image is tantamount to idolatry. So to rub that point in, Moses described the incident in Exodus 32 as if the Israelites were creating multiple gods, even though they're only creating one golden calf. They say to themselves, these are your gods in the plural. So they're actually resorting to polytheism when they try to create an idol to represent God because an idol cannot rightly represent God. There are several reasons why images of God must not be used in worship, why they cannot rightly stand for God. And first reason is that they always misrepresent God. In Deuteronomy 4, where Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments, he says, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. When God spoke to the Israelites at Mount Horeb, he revealed no form or appearance. As 1 Timothy 1.17 says, God is invisible. Why? Because as John 4.24 says, God is spirit. And those who make images of the invisible God are publishing lies about God because they are representing God in ways that he has not himself revealed. Habakkuk 2.18 puts it pointedly, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? Images we make can only be lies that falsely represent God. The second reason why images are forbidden is that they domesticate God. The nations surrounding Israel could not conceive a deity without the aid of images. So they manufactured idols and held special rituals to attract the presence of the deity to the idol, to the image, at which point the God became accessible to them and controllable. Idolatry is, is, is an attempt to tame God and to confine God. Images we make are deaf and dumb. They cannot speak. But as we observed last week from verse 1, a distinguishing attribute of the true God in contrast with the false gods of the world is that God speaks. It's precisely the point of Deuteronomy 4.12. It says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. God has chosen to reveal himself, not through a picture, not through a form, but through his word. A carved idol or a painted image of God can be carried, or carried around and, and put to the service of our own agendas. If you walk into Asian restaurants scattered throughout the city, you will find that many of them have mini altars right at the entrance with little images and sometimes with incense burning as sacrifices to them. They believe that these gods will bring many people to their businesses and prosper them. That's the appeal of these idols. 
They are tangible, and therefore they seem real to people. They are static. They are fixed in time and space. And because these idols don't speak to us, we're not accountable to them. We don't have to do anything they say. Instead, we can take them around and set them up to endorse anything that we want them to bless. We can wear them around our necks as good luck charms. We can put them on our rearview mirrors. We can put words into the mouths of these idols because they cannot speak. In contrast, the Lord is a person and not an object. So he speaks to us unlike the idols of this world and he can interrupt our lives and he can intervene in our lives by speaking to us. You get to know things by looking at them and using them. You get to know a person by listening to what they say. Images are not to be used in the worship of the Lord because to do so would violate God's sovereignty and freedom. You cannot domesticate God. A domesticated God is no God at all. It's important to note that we can commit idolatry even with good images. For example, an image of a dove to represent the Holy Spirit or even a cross to represent Jesus or crucifix if we treat them not as reminders of God, but as representations of God, if we start to attach spiritual significance and weight to them as if God were present in them, if we hang them on our view of the mirrors and thinking that they'll protect us from accidents or put them over our beds thinking that they would keep us from nightmares, then we're reducing God to an image in violation of the second commandment. I still remember uh, several years ago when we were still meeting at Kennedy Longfellow School, during the Lord's Supper, a guest in our church walked up for, to take communion, and then he pulled out this huge cross necklace, and then he handed it to me, and he said, hey, can you bless this for me? And that well, was really awkward because it was in the middle of communion, but it also made me really uncomfortable because it seemed to me like he was treating that pendant like an amulet, like a good luck charm. Now let me get this thing blessed by a pastor. Now I can carry it around. It's going to bring me good luck. It's going to bring blessings to my life. And so I told him, hey, I will not bless your necklace, but I will bless you. And I just blessed him personally. So there, there are many ways we can... And, and this, another example of this, I can't help but think of the, the adoration of the, or veneration of the saints uh, in some of the denominations. I think that falls under the prohibition of the Second Commandment. The Catechism of the Catholic Church cites Basil and says, the honor rendered to an image passes to its prototype. And whoever venerates an image venerates the person portrayed in it. It further distinguishes that the honor paid to sacred images is a respectful veneration, not the adoration due to God alone. But I think that's splitting hairs. I think that's a distinction without a difference. You can say that it's veneration and not worship or adoration all you want, but when you prostrate yourself before icons of saints, when you pray to these images as if they are the ears of God, when you make pilgrimages to admire and seek healing from the relics of saints, like the Shroud of Turin or the bones of deceased godly men and women from the past, when you parade the icons of saints throughout town for people to venerate, as they do every year in East Cambridge at the Feast of St. Cosmas and Damien in Cambridge, how is that not a violation of verse 5? You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In fact, the technical Greek word that Catholics use to refer to the veneration of the saints is douleia, which means service, 
And this verse tells us not to serve the images. Catholic apologists, Pope Gregory, for example, who argued for the preservation of images in church buildings, even when people were appropriately worshiping them, said this, those who cannot read may, by looking at the walls, read what they cannot read in books. This is how church icons came to be known as, quote, books of the lady, because much of the lady, uh, many of the lady were uh, illiterate at the time. However, uh, that's misguided because God did not reveal himself to his people in pictures, but in words. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And I don't think it's an accident that God reveals himself to his people in the midst of fire and clouds of glory. Because these things, smoke, cloud, and fire, they reveal something about God, but they also appropriately veil God. Deuteronomy 5.22 says, These words the Lord God spoke to you to your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. This veiling of God suggests to us that while no creature is hidden from God's all-knowing eye, no creature is hidden from God's sight, all are naked and exposed before the eyes of God. However, God himself does not lay naked in that way before all men. We cannot plumb the depths of God's infinite glory. And so we are to teach people to read. We are to teach people the word. That's how we are to know God. So that's the command. And what's the motivation? Verses 5 to 6. It's the jealousy of God. You shall not bow down to them or to worship or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. It might be shocking to some of you that God is described here as jealous. The Hebrew word behind it is a word that combines zeal or passion with jealousy, which is typical of a lover. Numbers 5.14 used that same word to describe a husband who suspects that his wife has been unfaithful to him. The jealousy that comes over him, it's the same word that is used here. If we, we commonly in English use the word jealousy and envy interchangeably, but if we make a technical distinction, jealousy is, is what we feel for what is rightly ours. So when your spouse belongs to you, is unfaithful, it is right for you to feel jealous in that situation because he or she rightly belongs to you. Envy is when you desire something that doesn't belong to you. That's when you covet. That's when you desire something that is someone else's. That's envy. So so God is never jealous of other people, what they have, but he is jealous for his people. He has no envy, but he has jealousy for his people because he has redeemed them. He has paid the cost to make them his own. and, And he loves them and he is devoted to them. And so he wants to keep them for himself, to be exclusively devoted to him. And it's this intense love of God and jealousy of God that drives uh, this uh, God to punish infidelity. It says in verses 5 to 6, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These verses have troubled people throughout the ages because they appear to suggest that God imputes the sins of guilty fathers on innocent children and punishes them for it. But that's not the case for a number of reasons. First, it doesn't say anywhere that these children are innocent. The Lord speaks of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
when scriptures speak of the iniquity of the fathers, it usually couples it with the iniquity of the sons as well. And, and that's because parents and children are organically connected in such a way that sons fill up the sins of their fathers. Scriptures are very clear in other places that God does not punish innocent children for the sins of their parents. For example, Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. In Ezekiel 18.20, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So the punished children in this case are not innocent. Second, the expression, the third and fourth generation, refers to the maximum number of generations that may be alive at one time. For example, God's blessing on Joseph is seen in the fact that in Genesis 50, verse 23, Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. So to Joseph's fourth generation, that would be his, down to his great-grandson. Similarly, Job 42.16 tells us that Job was blessed by God, that he lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. So seeing the welfare of your progeny down to the fourth generation is a sign of God's great blessing. The welfare of children and grandchildren were, was particularly important back in the day because children were seen in those times not as economic liabilities, but as economic assets. Because they're the ones that would help you to, to farm. They're the ones who would take care of you when you're old and unable to do manual labor. And so, so, when, so when disaster befalls your sons, it's, it's also, also punishment of the father. So a wicked father, in seeing the disaster that comes upon his sons, ends his life in despair, realizing that he has even brought his progeny to ruin. It is the mirror opposite of what Joseph and Job experienced. As Jewish scholar Jeffrey Tige notes, quote, this indicates that the suffering of the descendants is intended as a deterrent to and punishment of their ancestors, not a transfer of guilt to the descendants in their own right. Third, uh, though out of the intensity of his love and jealousy, the unfaithful fathers see the punishment for their own sins, even in the welfare of their children to the third and the fourth generation, this is contrasted with the loyal love that God shows to those who keep his commandments. He says, showing, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Because of the parallel between those verses, I interpret thousands to mean thousands of generations. That's why it says in the footnote to the ESV, that's how the NIV and CSB translate it. So thousands of generations. God will remember your iniquity to the third and fourth generation. If you are unfaithful to him, you break his covenant with him. But he will remember your love to him for a thousand generations. Remember that the third and fourth generations represent the maximum number of generations that a person might live to see. So it's really still within your own lifetime. It is one lifetime that God remembers and punishes your sin. But he will remember long after you are dead and gone, your faithfulness, your love toward him for a thousand generations. We see an example of this in 2 Kings 20 when the nation of Judah is besieged by the nation of Assyria because of their sin and they deserved punishment, they deserved exile. But the Lord says to King Hezekiah, who is the great, 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 great grandson of David, 
This is much more than third and fourth generation. This is what he says to him. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake. Even though they've been unfaithful for so many generations, God says, I still remember David. And so I will show you kindness. I will show you mercy. God's memory of our faithfulness far outlasts his memory of our unfaithfulness. And that's what this passage is teaching us. It's a testament not of God's vengefulness, but of his mercy and grace. And the ultimate example of God showing steadfast love to a thousand generations is seen in Jesus. Because in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God had promised to King David that he will rule, his house will rule forever. But the dynasty, humanly speaking, ended. The nation of Israel and Judah were exiled to foreign countries. They were not in the promised land anymore. And yet, after all those years, after hundreds of years, after all those generations, God brings Jesus from the line of David to be the messianic king who reigns and fulfills that promise to David. He remembers his faithfulness to a thousand generations. And that brings me to my final point, the fulfillment of this commandment in the image of God. Jesus fulfills the second commandment and brings it to its intended goal. The reason why God forbade the creation of images for worship was because he intended from the beginning to send Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus is his his ultimate image and we ought to worship him. Colossians 3.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John 1.14 says that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one divinely sanctioned image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, you don't have to look to other things. Instead of paintings and sculptures, the Lord gives us a living and breathing person in Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus' life revealed in His Word. Look at His compassion and mercy towards sinners in His life. Look at the love that Jesus displays when He lays down His life for us on the cross and dies for our sins so that we might live. Look at His resurrection, how He defeats sin and death and the demons and is raised over over it all and is ascended to the heavens at the right hand of the Father, then that you can see God's authority and God's power. And that's why when Philip asked Jesus in John 14, show us the Father, Jesus says, how can you ask me to show you the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That raises a question, however, is it okay then for us to create artistic depictions of Jesus? Since he was incarnated and he took on human flesh, he did have a physical appearance. So what about the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro? What about the Jesus film or the Chosen series? Because of the incarnation, I think it is permissible to create artistic and dramatic representations of Jesus. However, I still don't think that we should create representations of Jesus to bow down to them and to serve them because God gave us the living person of Jesus as his image, not pictures of him. I don't think it's a coincidence that no portrait of Jesus has survived to this day. 
There's nothing from the first century handed down to us. New Testament never describes the physical appearance of Jesus, except for telling us that he wasn't handsome, taken from Isaiah, taken from Isaiah 53. No one knows exactly what Jesus looked like, but Jesus passed down his word. Jesus promised that when the Spirit of God comes after his ascension, that he will speak and bring to remembrance all that he has said and taught us. The Spirit speaks the words of Jesus. He does not produce pictures of Jesus in our minds. I think theologian Edmund Clowney gets it to the right heart, to the heart of this dilemma. He says, In our desire not to profane Christ by worshiping an image of him, we must also be cautious that we don't spiritualize him into thin air. If we show no pictures of Jesus' everyday life to our children, how will they know his reality? Let me offer a principle that may help us determine what is a good use of image when it comes to portraying Jesus. I suggest that portraits of Jesus are the problem. Many representations show the reality of Jesus without offering a portrait, which in its very nature invites us to worship. So he's saying don't produce portraits that are meant to be to appear like exact representations of Jesus. Here is Jesus. Here is, this is what Jesus is like. This is how you should get to know him. A helpful example of this is the 20th century uh, portrait of Jesus entitled The Head of Christ by uh, American artist Warner Salmon. Have you guys seen this? If you Google it, I bet you'll come up and you'll be like, oh yes, I know exactly. I've seen this picture before. It's probably the artistic work that has enjoyed the greatest mass appeal in, in the modern age. By the end of the 20th century, it had already been reproduced over half a billion times worldwide. You find replicas of it in many church buildings. In fact, there was a large portrait of it, a copy of it, uh, at the bottom of the stairwell in the church that I grew up in South Korea. And I, as a kid, that's what I grew up seeing. So whenever I thought of Jesus, I imagined that picture. And I think that's inappropriate. Uh, I don't think that's what... That's, I think that, that's the intention. That's the way images should function in our, in our worship, in our uh, thinking about God. Uh, and I, to give an example of this, some people have you know, attributed miracles to this painting by Salmon. And they have made pilgrimages to it in Coptic Orthodox Church in Houston, where they claim that this picture, the portrait of Salmon, cured a, a, a boy with leukemia. I don't think this is any different from the cult of saints venerating images of Christians from past ages. While we can honor Christ and represent Him in art, if we cross over to saying that that piece of art is who Christ is, if we start paying homage to it and venerating it and attributing supernatural powers to it, I think we are violating the second commandment as it applies to us as Christians. God does not intend for us to create images of Him or His Son. He intends for us to be his images as we are sanctified and restored more and more to the likeness of Christ. Remember, God created us in his image. Even though because of our sin, the image of God in us is defaced, it is still there. And by Christ we, and by the Holy Spirit, it is, we are being restored more and more to the fullness of God's image in Christ. That's why Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians 3.7-18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So let's not look around at other images. There's now no longer a veil that divides us and God. The veil has been removed and we see the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And so we can behold Him. And let's behold Him in His Word. Behold Him in His Word. And as we behold Him, we'll be transformed more and more to the glory of Christ, to the likeness of Christ. And that is our Christian calling. That's why we are here to belong to Jesus, to love Jesus, to become like Jesus. So let's pray for that together. Heavenly Father, that is what we long for. We seek no idols because Christ is sufficient for us. Lord, help us to worship Him rightly and behold His glory every day in Your Word. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, transform us. Make us more like Him. That we might more rightly represent You to the world and lead this creation in the worship of the triune God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.